Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. He's like online for those of you watching online or on replay. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for making it out in person. For those of you here in person, we are uh, on part two of a series that we kicked off last week. It does feel like we're in that time of the year when Megan said in that video just now, remember uh, uh, voting on Tuesday? That feels like a month ago to me. I don't know uh, what's going on with it, but we did start a series last week. Uh, uh, it's called Unmendable, and it's a series on reconciliation. And we said that there's a difference between uh, relationships uh, that are that require uh, forgiveness and ones that require reconciliation. Uh, and every once in a while, we butt up against life where we have something going on uh, with somebody, and oftentimes it's somebody that we're related to. And the reason it feels extra relevant right now is because we're entering into a season where we're going to have to come face to face with some of those relationships because Thanksgiving and holidays and travel and all that kind of stuff. And we don't have the excuse anymore of like, you know, two years ago, it was like pandemic can't make it. Last week, it was like maybe pandemic can't make it. Uh, and now this year, if we do it, they're going to know something's up and we just don't like them. And so we have to get more creative on this, or we have to actually deal with these unmendable or seemingly unmendable relationships. Um, and so we said, uh, the, you know, one of the things about it is uh, forgiveness. You can forgive people from a distance, uh, but re reconciliation requires a, a movement towards it. It requires a, a relationship that goes beyond this thing that you know, cause this wedge in, in front of us. And it doesn't mean that we get back to the exact same way that things were before this thing happened, but it does ensue or it does um, concern some sort of relationship because you can forgive somebody, like we said, from a distance, even from the distance of they're no longer with us. You can you can say, I, I forgive them even though they've, they've passed on. Um, but reconciliation is, is just a little step up from that. And yet, um, when we looked at we, we, uh, a verse that Jesus had this conversation with people, uh, and uh, he told a parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like this servant who owed a bunch of money to somebody who was then forgiven a, a large sum of money who went to then somebody else who owed him a much, much, much smaller amount of money and refused to extend to that servant uh, the same forgiveness that he had received. And Jesus says, when you do that, things are broken. Uh, and that this, that you truly just, I don't think that you understand what the nature of your forgiveness really is when you can, when you fail to do that. And, and he said, this isn't, this is just a parable. This is just a story. But in the same way that you have been forgiven so much from your heavenly father to then not be somebody who chooses forgiveness or isn't as lean towards people, towards reconciliation is to potentially misunderstand where we stand in relationship to the father. So you would do well, or we would do well, or we said the question was what, what is, what kind of role, what is the role of forgiveness in the life of the follower uh, of the way of Jesus? Um, what does forgiveness look like for me? If, if you uh, attend here and if this is a regular kind of spot for you, you know, this is a place where our goal each week is to come and say, Jesus, we think that Jesus of Nazareth taught a unique way of living. We think that his insight was not just, he was a really smart person, a wise teacher, but actually the son of God uh, and actually this divine being. That, and and we, we think it's like worth uh, looking at this, looking at what he said or what he said to a specific group of people and then kind of interpreting it for our 21st century 
era and saying, what would it look like for us then to live in that way? And we do this, we interpret it in community. Uh, we live it out in community. We do this all, all together and we're trying to kind of just be a beneficial presence in the world based on the teachings of Jesus. That's why we get together. So in that sense, we're gonna take a few weeks and say, what does forgiveness mean in this? What does it look like to be uh, uh, somebody who forgives? And then number two, what role does reconciliation play when scenarios in life feel unmendable? Because again, forgiveness is, is not, I wouldn't say it's easy. It's not easy. It's easier than reconciliation. Um, you can have forgiveness without reconciliation, but you cannot have reconciliation without some level of forgiveness. Um, and so what do you do or what role does reconciliation play when scenarios in life feel unmendable? So that first question's, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's easier than the second question, which is what role does reconciliation play? when scenarios in life feel unmendable. And Jesus seems to have some pretty high expectations for his followers in the area of uh, reconciliation. And again, he said, you learn something about your heavenly father when you do when you do the reconciliation work. Here's what he would say. When you do reconciliation work, you learn something about the nature of the love of your heavenly father that you cannot read in a book, you can't be taught, you can't like, you know, sit in a message and take notes enough unless you're physically and tangibly doing the work of attempting to be a part of a reconciliation project of unmendable relationships, you learn something, you, you are more perceptive of the depths and the lengths to which God is attempting to reconcile creation on a macro level, but also on a micro level, as in you and me, unto himself. When you do the work, when you realize how hard it is, and you, you've done this as parenting, right? You, you've, you've now, some of you are parents to like young kids, and you've had conversations with your mom or your dad, and you'd be like, thank you. Thank you for raising me. I had no idea how hard this was until I'm raising my own kids, right? You can read books on it, but it doesn't matter. Until, until you've been woken up with a puking child at 3 a.m., yeah, it happened this week. Um, you don't know how hard it is. until, until And then and you have a natural appreciation. You go to them. And what does your mom do? She sits there and goes, you're welcome. <laughs> and sips her tea, just like that, right? So anyways, um, you, you, you learn about, about it in that way, and this is a good learning, a, a good learning ground. When we participate in unmendable relationships and, and do uh, reconciliation projects with them, it shapes the way that we view uh, our Heavenly Father. So, all right, <clears throat> uh, we're going to look through a different text today. Uh, this one is found in the book of Matthew. It's found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount era, okay? So, um, Matthew, we think, was somebody who followed Jesus around, was one of his disciples, who was probably a, a tax collector, Levi, who had, who had been approached by Jesus and said, leave that, follow me. Um, because he was a tax collector, you, don't get, you aren't successful at that job unless you're a details kind of person, uh, unless you're probably pretty intelligent with numbers and, and, and things. And so what we see in his version of the Jesus story is a very uh, organized account written primarily towards a Jewish audience, um, it's got sections. It's got like uh, five teaching discourses of Jesus. So Jesus sat down. And it would like specifically say if you if you look at the you know the big format, uh, the ten thousand foot view of the book of Matthew, Jesus sat down on a mountainside and taught this from chapters five through chapter seven. And then they got up, they went off and did things. Then he healed people, went to these different places, and then he sat down and taught this. And there's like five of those teaching discourses. And the one that's the most famous is the very first one, which is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five through chapter seven. This is where he starts off with the Beatitudes. Um, he's not very well known at this point. So people are still kind of like arms crossed, checking Jesus out. We'll see. He, he, he does these uh, sort of things. Lots of ethics for living. Uh, chapters five through seven are, are lots of... Um, not like tenets of belief, but behavioral 
uh, here's how you should live. Very, very, very practical. So if you're into like practical wisdom from this, you would love Matthew chapter five through seven, and you're gonna love today. That's, that's kind of where this comes from. So um, chapter seven, verses one through five, this first verse, I'm just gonna mention here, I won't, uh, we're gonna go down these a little bit later, but even if you're not a religious person, it is surprising how many non-religious people who if you ask them, do you know anything about the Bible? Like, I don't know, I know nothing about the Bible. Know this first verse, love this first verse. It's a very American verse. In fact, most people know it in a translation of a Bible version that they don't even read. But it's do not judge lest ye be judged. That is a, uh, that is a common, it, it shows up in, in comment sections of all kinds of Facebook posts and everything else. And uh, it, political season just really gets supercharged. Uh, the, everybody knows this version when it comes to dealing with Christians in the public you know, sphere or whatever. Don't judge. Didn't, didn't your savior say, don't judge lest ye be judged? And you're like, you never say lest. What are you talking about? How do you know that word, right? It's so funny. Uh, this one says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And this is a, a difficult one. We, we, we even said a little bit about this last week. We, we tend to do this. This is a human condition where we judge other people on a different measuring stick than we judge ourselves. When we're late to a meeting, we, we have all kinds of reasons for it. The traffic was terrible. The kids were awful. It was just, a, I couldn't find my keys. It was crazy. When other people are late to a meeting that we attend and we're on time for, they're irresponsible. That's a character issue. They got to really get that figured out. We're going to make notes of that. We, we tuck that away for ourselves. It, it influences the biases, the way that we see them, right? So we do this and, and Jesus is saying, listen, don't judge. We know how this works. We, we tend to be unfair in our judgment of other people because we don't judge ourselves by the same measuring stick. And then verse three, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's the verse, that's the text for today that we're gonna be diving into uh, in a moment. But to set the stage for that, um, when it comes to unmendable relationships, if I were to say, and I, and I kind of did this last week, hey, as I'm talking about this and thinking through this, if there's like a picture of somebody that raises up to your mind or, or uh, again, a lot, oftentimes it's family because like there's like that familial obligation and we have to meet and I'm supposed to like you even though I... I'm supposed to be around you even though I don't like you. And, and, and you, there's a constant butting of heads, especially in political season. And they, they see things their way and you see things the right way. And it's just like a hard, it just, it doesn't mesh well. It's a really tough uh, sort of thing. When it comes to those kind of relationships, if I was to say, all right, you got that picture in your mind, you know who it is. Um, you know what relationship needs a little bit of work. The most unmendable relationship that you find yourself in, right? If we didn't have to hang out, we wouldn't. But now I have to or whatever. Um, and I said, tell me about it. Tell me what happened. What, what, what's going on with this? Why is this? Why is this relationship unmendable to you? Almost inevitably, I, I promise you, it would start off with you would say, or I would say something like this. So, here's the thing, right? Dot dot dot. Here, here's the deal. Let me let me um, you know something you should know about my dad, right? Let me tell you where my dad gets his news source from. This is going to tell you a lot about who he is, right? Uh, we have all of these prefaces and caveats and things that are like, I want to tell you the story, but before I do, you need to know some context of it first, because it'll explain how this always works. Or, or I'll say, tell me about, you know, tell me about this unmendable relationship. And you'd be like, long pause, 
clearly you're struggling to kind of get the words together and piece them together, two thoughts or whatever. And, and, and you're getting these things and I'll, I'll ask this and people will be like, am I allowed to cuss around you? I don't know where we stand. Are we cool with that? Because I don't know that I can talk about this without some of that language coming out. Listen, don't get me wrong. I love Jesus. I cuss a little. That's how this works. Deal with it. And, uh, and uh, it's hard. I, I get it. Here's what I know. Uh, things people cannot wait to tell me. If, if I was to sit down with you and we were to do this, this conversation over coffee in a coffee shop or whatever, and I said, unamendable relationships, forgiveness, reconciliation, what does that look like for you? Uh, things people can't wait to tell me are how things went wrong, why they went wrong, and who's to blame in the scenario. How things went wrong, here's the timeline of it. Um, why, here's my personal perspective on the motivations behind why they said what they said and why they did what they did. And then here's the blame pie. If, there, if, if blame was a pie, we all like are figuring out like slices of the pie. This is this belongs to them. This belongs to me. And whenever we do this again, based on the the very first couple verses in this thing, um, the pie is never a 50-50 pie. It's never a half and half. It's always it's always um, I, I want to own something. I own I own pieces of it, but our slice of the pie is typically really really small, right? Like a little tiny piece, so small that if the sherry server were to take out an actual piece of pie to you, deliver it at your table, and you would say, this is not enough. I'm, I'm, I'm paying for too much. To, to Please take this back. I need, I need more pie. That's the problem that we have oftentimes with this blame game on these things. And we are emotionally intelligent enough people to not say it's all their fault. We would, you know, I, I mean, I, I feel like in the lobbies and our conversations with you, I mean, you guys are smart. None of you would say it's 100% their fault. We would all say, there's a piece of it. I mean, there's, some of it's my fault, right? I'm emotionally aware enough to say, uh, I, and, and you, you either say that because you know that you're supposed to say that, or maybe you genuinely, hopefully, believe and understand that some of it is, is technically your fault. But um, that's a big piece of it. So we, 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 uh, we say how things are, why they, why they are, and then we participate in this uh, sort of blame game. And then we hear, if I was to kind of press a little bit further, excuses as for why they remain unmendable. So, okay, so now I understand that they exist and why you think that they exist, but why is it now year two or five or 10 that this continues to remain unmendable for you? Uh, why has there not been any progress um, in this area? Uh, and, and sometimes people would say, uh, excuses for that would be number one, I, I just don't care. I just don't care anymore. Like it's not a big enough deal. It's not a big enough deal to die on. It doesn't matter to me. And the problem is with that, if we're honest with ourselves, we often say this about things that we actually do genuinely care deeply about. How many times have you said, I don't care where we eat to your spouse when I mean, genuinely you do, right? Or what do you want to do tonight? I don't care. You do care. Cause I'm going to say something and you're gonna be like, not that. And you're like, well, then you do care. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, and so when it comes to, to this sort of thing, when I'd say, What's, why, are, why are relationships continue to be unmendable? Oh, it's, it's fine. I just don't care anymore. You do. You think about it. I mean, the fact that you think about it, the fact that um, this is something that comes up to your brain, if, it, if you really genuinely didn't care, then you wouldn't even think of this or consider this relationship to be unmendable. So when you say, I don't care anymore about it, probably what you mean, if you were to be honest with yourself, is I sort of feel powerless and this is my out, and this is my excuse, and this is my way of dealing with this without really dealing with this, um, is just to say, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't care anymore. It's not, it's not a big deal. Uh, or, you know, you, you know, let's speak truth to it a little bit. 
um, you don't feel like there's an option or you feel like you don't have any leverage or any power in that sort of relationship. Number two, sometimes you'll say, oh, I already tried. I tried that. I already tried. I gave it my best shot, right? Um, the ball is sort of in their court now. And, and this is what we dealt with a little bit last week in saying um, that reconciliation, uh, the goal of unmendable relationships isn't reconciliation. And the reason it's not reconciliation is because you don't have all of the pieces of the puzzle to make reconciliation possible. Some of that lies with them. And so don't make, don't put for yourself a goal that is unachievable. Um, your goal should be, I'm gonna live life with no regrets. I'm gonna do my part to kind of go as far as I can uh, and then allow them the decision to figure out if this relationship kind of continues, which I think is representative of our heavenly father. If you think about it on that sort of a level, does what he can and then there's, some onus on us to be able to be like, to respond in that way. That's how we kind of look at this with reconciliation pieces. When we say, I already tried that though, what we're oftentimes communicating is I'm waiting on them. Our posture is waiting on them to do something. If they wanna come find us, you know, if they wanna come here, they know where we live, this is fine. Or we said last week that churches do this on a, on a big level. We, we, we say we care about the lost and, and then we don't actually, we, don't, we never leave the 99 to go find the one. We sit there and go, they know where we meet, 9.15, 10.30, Sunday mornings. They wanna come. No, 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 I get here, right? So anyways, uh, when we say I, I already tried that, we're kind of giving into that as well and we're playing that game again. And lastly, another excuse is it wasn't my fault. What happened wasn't my fault. And uh, this is, uh, comes down to that blame thing again, and it comes down to narratives and telling ourselves stories. And as we'll see today, I think in the scriptures, we dive through it in just a second, um, that that is a dangerous uh, way to live or a dangerous mindset to live. And I do think that when we say that, when we say it wasn't my fault, and when we, when we genuinely believe it, uh, there is no way for that not to affect how we perceive our relationship with the Heavenly Father. And so um, that's why Jesus, when he has a chance to talk to people and say, here's the basics, guys. Here's what you need to know about the God who exists, I think, out there and, and wants to have a relationship with you. Don't judge lest you be judged. Don't do all this kind of stuff. And then verse three, we're gonna jump in verse three because I already said you already know verse one and two on that. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that's in your own eye? This is his like opening sort of foray into this sensitive area. And he's talking to people and he's looking at them in their eye, presenting them with a situation uh, where he goes to them and says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And if I'm sitting on a mountainside back in those times hearing Jesus say these things to me, I'm looking at him going, here's the problem, Jesus. It's not a speck of sawdust, Jesus. It's not a speck of sawdust. What they did to me is a bigger deal than this. It feels worse than that. And I love the picture, the metaphor that Jesus uses in this because I don't know if you've ever had a speck of sawdust or anything in your eye. But what do we know? I'm, I'm guessing that you have because you're human. What do we know about things when they get in the eye? They feel a lot bigger than they actually are, don't they? When you get something in your eye you and you can't, you know, you're just like doing whatever, you go to somebody that you trust and you're like, can you see anything right there? And they're looking and they're, they're going, oh man, I just, I can't see anything. You're like, that's impossible. This thing is huge. What's wrong with you? Like, it's your fault. 
this is happening to me, or you can't figure this out. And they go, maybe, maybe it's that. And then the, like this little thing comes out and you look at it and it's on your finger and you're like, that little thing was causing all that pain? Because in that moment, it feels like a massive thing about it. So this is, this is the big deal. Like when we, when we, we hear him say, um, you've got a speck in your own eye, we, we go, uh, or we're noticing a, a speck in, in the other person's eye. Um, we go, it's not a speck. What they did was huge. Like to, don't downplay it. I, I need you to sit like my counselor and be like, that sounds really bad. Can you tell me more? Instead, Jesus is going, like, it sounds like you're downplaying the whole thing with me, Jesus. It's not a speck. Also me, and I don't have a plank in my eye. That's also me, right? So it's not just a speck. Also, I don't have a plank in my eye. That's how we respond. Verse four, Jesus doesn't allow us or let us off the hook in any easy way. He says, how can you say to your brother, permit me to take the speck out of your eye? Permit me. I love this language. Permit me to permit me to take the uh, speck out of your eye because uh, it almost sounds like somebody saying, "If if uh, if you'll let me, I can help you." Right? And it's very sort of egotistical. It's very like uh, it's very out there. It's very like, who do you think you are? And you've got those friends who want to offer you financial advice, and you're like, "Dude, you are upside down on your car lease. Do you know how many car payments you have? Do you know how much stuff you've overpaid for? Like, hold the phone on your advice in this way." Or they want to talk to you about your diet, right? And be like, oh, intermittent fasting. You're like, you are eating McDonald's right now. You do not have the moral authority to tell me what, how my diet works or doesn't work for me, right? You've lost all, authority, uh, all moral authority in this way. So Jesus said, how can you say to your brother, permit me to take the speck out of your eye, eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Now, I want to pause here for one second because there's something here in the grammar of the Greek that is important that I think kind of like highlights this a little bit more. Uh, um, so just, you know, you probably know this already because you're pretty smart, but the Old Testament and the New Testament were written in different languages uh, than, than English. So the Bible wasn't like, didn't float down to us in the English language. Here we go. Um, it was written by a bunch of different people. The Old Testament in he mostly Hebrew uh, and the New Testament in mostly Greek. Um, and uh, in that Greek language, uh, there, then there's a bunch of really smart people who look at all the different manuscripts and be like, well, I think this says this, and I think it interprets this way. But anytime you interpret one language to a different language, there's going to be room. There's going to be some wiggle room. There's going to be some, some, he thinks it says this, he thinks it says this, she thinks it says this. What do you, what do you think is the right way to do this? Um, and it's hard because there isn't necessarily always a word-for-word this in the Greek means this in the English. Uh, for example, just as a quick example, um, you know, when it comes to the word love, uh, there are four different words in the Greek to talk about love. You say, I, I love this and I love this. We just, as, as English speakers, go, I love cheeseburgers, I love my wife. And we know that those are two different things, right, guys? I mean, those are two different things. Um, and, uh, but, but that's the same word that we use. They would say differently for that. So in the same way, or in a related way, I should say, um, when Jesus says this, permit me to take the speck out of your own eye, when all the time, that word all the time is like this continuing sort of verb thing that has like a shade to it that is a little bit more personable. Uh, there is a plank in your own eye that I don't think uh, we, we fully grasp the confrontational nature of this based on that interpretation. So what I've done is I've rewritten it for you. This is Brent's translation. This is not, don't, you know, publish this and say, my pastor thinks it's this and he's 
you know, biblical knowledge guy, whatever. This is just helping us kind of understand this a little bit better, right? So here, here we go. Here's, here's a new sort of translation or new way to read this. Jesus saying, how, uh, how can you say to your brother, permit you to take the speck out of your own eye when, but aha, there is a plank in your own eye. See how the reveal there feels like uh, a little bit more emotional, a little bit more like Oh, I see what you did there. You pulled this like little switch on me. You, you uh, like a magician who says, oh, over here, it's over here. And then it's over here. You know what I mean? Like, I see what you've done here, but aha, it's in your own eye. What are you gonna do about that? That's a, that's a, that's a big deal. So Jesus is trying to insinuate, like he's trying to draw the contrast for this. Then he says, you hypocrite, you hypocrite. And he uses a word, that they would have used to describe actors on a stage in a theater sort of performance, who in those in that time frame would have to illustrate truths of morals and truths of society. They would they would stand on a stage. They would have masks on, and it would be. I understand that when you're on that stage in the context of doing this, you're wearing this mask. That's you. You're you're a hypocrite. Uh, not in the negative sense. You're just portraying something different than this. You're, you're not, that's not really you. And I, I'm, I'm able to kind of facilitate that. He's saying this, you're, when, when you do that, that's not really you. You're, you're wearing a mask of sorts. You're, you're lying about it. You're lying to kind of communicate something, a, a truth of your own thing, but you're a hypocrite. And the perceived moral at this point, if this was all there was to it, we often would stop and think, and we do. This is kind of how maybe you have entered into this and have heard this phrase before and thought to yourself, oh, well, the moral of that is I should just mind my own business. Even when people say, didn't your like, savior say, don't judge lest you be judged? We go, oh, I should just mind my own business. I should just like, I should opt for inaction. My option is not to take any action whatsoever. But that's not necessarily what is going on. I think there's a different thing that he proposes in this way. Look at what he says. It's not a problem of inaction. He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see so clearly to be able to remove the plank out of your brother's eye. First, take it out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly. You don't have an inaction problem. The goal isn't stop being you know, in other people's business. The problem is the order in which you do it. It's a problem of disorder, not of inaction. Jesus is saying the order in which you do it too often is I'm so quick to be able to be like, yeah, but there, let's start there and then we'll eventually get to me. Let me tell you how things went down, why things went down and who's to blame, hint, hint, it's them and never starting with me. And he would say, you're, you're getting things out of order before you fix them, start with yourself because only then will you be qualified or have any sort of input whatsoever that's worthy of being heard, listened to, and adhered to. What if our prayers instead of like, you know, fix them, do this, God, if you could just help them in this way. What if it was heavenly father, please show me where I might be at fault in this. I know what he did to you is terrible. I know what she said is, 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 awful. And, and in, in the court of public opinion, it wouldn't take long for you to get the evidence out there, show you the text messages, show you the things. The divorce is going to be nasty. There's kids involved. There's all kinds of stuff. I understand. It's not clean. It's not great. It's not, it's not fun. It's not what you're looking forward to. It's a relationship that feels completely unmendable. But a really, I think, honestly, a healthy place to be able to begin, at least according to Jesus, the way that he presents it, is um, saying, the, I, I need to get the order right. 
I need to get the order right. I need to understand, I want to help them reconcile this with themselves and, and, and grow beyond this. I care about them in that way. But the only way that that's gonna happen is if I do the work on me first and I get the order correct, that I'm not a hypocrite in that way, that I'm not portraying something that I don't believe or whatever, I, I need to work on this myself. So Heavenly Father, please show me where I might be at fault. And then Jesus makes a promise. If you do this in this order and you do the order correctly, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly that there is a clarity that comes only when we start with our own specs. That the problem with this, the, the plank that's in our eyes, it causes a disclarity, a, you know, a lack of clarity to be able to see things clearly. But there's no period here. That's not it. It's not, the goal isn't so that you will see clearly and that's it. But because following Jesus never stops with just me, he goes on and says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What we see over and over in scripture, at least in the way of Jesus, when he portrays what's the goal, what does it mean to worship and love God? What, what, what are the greatest commandments? What's the thing we should build our life upon? Loving God, loving other people. That the relationship here is both vertical in terms of me and God, but it's also horizontal, horizontal in nature. You can't have one without the other, truly. That you can't be like, God, we're good, but these people are idiots, right? He's like, that doesn't work. I love these people. These idiots that you call, these are my children. These are who I love. It doesn't work for you, in, like in a practical setting, to come to me and like, Brent, you're great, but like Kylie, oof, you know what I mean? Your kids, awful, right? I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I love those people. Those are the people I love in my life. And be, and, and be like, I know I don't like them, but we're cool, right? I'd be like, no, we're not cool. We're not cool at all. Don't try and play it off like we're cool. This is, this is where Jesus says, listen, you have got, I want you so badly to, to get this right, to figure out the order so that you can be a part of the healing process for them. But they'll never listen to you unless you take ownership of your peace first. Unless you, uh, uh, unless you fail to realize, I've got my own peace that I need to work on it in this way. Self-righteousness always gets in the way. Self-awareness paves the way. So I will own my slice of the blame pie. Or another way of putting it, and this is if you're writing notes or this is, this is like the big uh, take-home thing, in, and I, I love this. This is really good. But, and I, I, yeah, I know I wrote it, so I'm biased in that way. But if there's something about me that's an obstacle to us, that just means I've got some work to do. What if the people in your life who are on the other, other end or other side of this unmendable relationship believe this about you? What would that mean to you? If there's something about me that's an obstacle to us and I've got some work to do. That is a powerful, powerful phrase. And if that statement resonates with you, if the idea of some sort of forgiveness begins with me, I own this, I, am, I, have, um, <clears throat> I have an obligation to my heavenly father or um, according to Jesus, if I don't get this right, then I'm not truly understanding where I stand in my relationship with my heavenly father. If forgiveness is an appealing thing to you, if you, if you maybe you're not even like a religious person, right? You're, you're here because free coffee, childcare, somebody bribed you with lunch afterwards or something like that. Or you're watching this online and, and, and thinking it was, it's fine or whatever. Um, it, but that piece resonates with you. You can be arms crossed about, I don't know about Jesus. Jesus said a lot of things. So I'm not just gonna be like, spoon-fed everything that he says and not filter it through, does this actually play out and work in real life? But I hear that and I like that. 
and I'm not even religious, but I like that. Then one of the things that I found very, very interesting about forgiveness is that when you look at the spectrum of human intuition and human evolution and the mindset of ethics and frameworks and when did forgiveness become a virtue worth pursuing? Why is that so appealing to you? What is the origin of forgiveness? Because there's an ethicist, um, her name's Hannah Arendt. She's a philosopher who deals with ethics and morality who wrote about forgiveness. And here's what she had to say about this. The discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is coming from somebody not Christian, not religious, not, this is from a secular atheist sort of perspective on this, or she's spiritualist, but not Christian, okay? So, but she's saying that this, this idea of forgiveness found its origin in the teachings of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. When you look at history books, we don't really see forgiveness as a virtue as something to be pursued or something to worth sacrificing for or living for until we see it in the teachings of Jesus. It did not really truly exist prior to that. The fact that he made this discovery in a religious context and it articulated it in a religious language is no reason to take it less seriously in a strictly secular sense. She's like, I know it resonates with you on a secular level, not in a religious. I like that even though I'm not religious. Great. What she says, what you need to know is that came out of, here's when we see this first beginning to kind of emerge in human thought is through the teachings of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So don't discredit it just simply because it's religious in nature or he tends to be a religious icon. That's where we see this sort of thing come in. Prior to that, in the Roman world, cardinal virtues were wisdom, justice, courage, and self-control. There were a lot of things that were uh, present. You and I could probably read books on Stoicism by Marcus Aurelius and be like, that's a really good way to do life. There are lots of good, general, awesome wisdom, phrases that work thousands of years later in our modern day context in terms of building a good life and being a good person and being a member of society that's productive and friendly and all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of good stuff in there. All of these things that they would say cardinal virtues tend to exclude or at least discourage emotions of mercy and affection. Mercy and affection. Growing up in the, in, in the Roman world in that context, everything was about power, everything was about honor and shame, and mercy and affection were not on the, on the line. And if you forgave somebody, it wouldn't make sense to do, you didn't forgive people. You had pity on them, you felt bad for them. I'm so sorry that you did this. I don't know what is in you that caused you to react or act in this way. You have my pity, but you do not have my forgiveness. Because if I extend forgiveness to you, I'm validating your way of being. And I'm saying uh, to the extent I'm bringing you back up to my level, it would be better for me to act as if what you did didn't hurt me. And I'm invulnerable. I'm, I, I'm not vulnerable to your, your behaviors. I don't care what you do. It's not gonna affect me. I'm stoic in my resolve of that, of that not affecting. But to extend forgiveness, to look at people and extend grace and forgiveness and mercy, that is a new thing with Jesus. And what we see with Jesus and the reason that he did it and the reason that he begins to talk about it, he says is because it's only when you begin to practice that that you will get the tacit knowledge that comes with understanding then where you stand, why you are a recipient of forgiveness and grace and mercy. It's, it's in doing that, it's in the practice of reconciliation that you get this. Hannah Rent says, this is a brand new thing on the scene with Jesus. 
And, and the crazy thing about it is, is, is we love this because from the very beginning, the church, Christian church was remarkable, was known, was written about, was highlighted. One of the reasons it survives first century world in, in general, why it survived Roman empire. Why did the church made it and Roman empire dissolved? Why? They had the big head start. They had everything going for them. Why did the church win or survive, I should say? For its emphasis on practice of forgiveness and non-retaliation that one of the core principle teachings of them was a practice of practicing forgiveness, practicing non-retaliation, to be the recipient of all kinds of persecution and all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of disregard and to not operate out of a sense of like, I pity them or I resent them or I con you know, condescension or whatever, but to extend forgiveness, mercy, affection. It doesn't make any sense. Paul, when writing his letter to the Roman church, a church that is unique in all of his letters because most of the churches that he writes letters to, Philippians, Colossians, uh, Ephesians, uh, all of those things are churches that he had helped start and plant and had a relationship with and he's operating as sort of an external advisor. He had no relationship really with Rome other than he wanted to go visit them someday and wanted them to know he's got like apostolic authority and teaching and you can trust me and you guys are searching for like actual truths when it comes to Jesus. I have some thoughts for you on it. And in chapter 12, he writes this as a a means of practical advice, verse 18. If it is at all possible or by whatever means possible, as far as it depends on you, be or live at peace with everyone. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Be at peace with, if it's at all possible with you in your unmendable relation. I know we're gonna interpret it from our way of doing it. We're gonna approach it from you know 21st century here, us, me, in this context with my unmendable relationship that I'm going through, that I have all kinds of reasons. Well, he said this and this. Here's the timeline. Here's the blame pie. Here's all the things. I need to hear with clarity the words of Paul, the advice of him, saying, if it is at all possible, as far as it depends on me, to live or to be at peace with everyone that I can. And there is a temptation in a talk like this, with a message like this, with the practical steps and implications of this, to be one of those messages where you sit there watching online or watching at home or watching here and going, my goodness, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. <laughs> my husband desperately needs to hear this, but he's at home watching the Seahawks game. Like it, you know. Uh, anyways, we, we we say this. It, it, it's it. Uh, we we. There's a sense in which we kind of play this out a lot of times and, and, and a lot of weeks, and we go, "Oh, that's really good." Some I you know, a neighbor needs to hear this. But this one in particular is is really hard to not break through that and not think through this. But I, I would encourage you to get beyond that, to think of it in you. In fact, even when it comes down to that Romans twelve eighteen. I'm gonna ask you in a few moments to kind of memorize this, but there's gonna be some, a, a change in it in terms of pronouns. As far as possible as it depends on me, could I do what it takes to live at peace with everybody? <clears throat> uh, pastor named Andy Stanley wrote a uh, series on, on forgiveness and, and mending relationships and reassembly, uh, reassembly required was the name of it. But he said this, the more aware I am of what God has yet to do in me, the less aware I am and the less consumed I am by what he has yet to do in people around me. And I just thought that, that was really incredibly practical wisdom that fit very nicely with this kind of a thought. In light of Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, the more I am focused on what God has still yet to do in me, my area of growth, the piece of the pie I can own, the less aware I am and the less consumed I am. I love that. 
Because how often are we consumed? We're like, all we can think about is what they need to work on. Gosh, I can't shake this. Sorry to be shallow, but like you have so much work to be done on you. Do you understand? The less consumed I am by what he has yet to do in people around me. So may we be the type of people who peek over the shoulder of the Roman church as they receive a letter from Paul and hear him encouraging them in this way and being like, that kind of you know, remains true for me. Or I think that there's application there for me too. That if I want to truly follow in the way of Jesus, forgiveness and reconciliation is gonna have some sort of a role to play. That I am called to forgive. That the goal necessarily isn't reconciliation, but to do my part, to not wait on people to come find me and forgive me, but to lean heavy into their direction. And in doing so, also lead with the right order of things, working on myself. I know I have things to work on. I have not been perfect in this. I'll be the first to admit, uh, got some work to do. And my goal then is to not just sit with that and go in action and not help you in your relationships, but work on me so that if by chance I've earned any sort of moral authority to be able to speak truth into you, to help take the plank or the speck out of your eye, and that would be helpful too, because it's not just about me. So may we be that type of people. May that influence and inform the, the conversations that you have around a dinner table here in a couple of weeks uh, with unamendable relationship in your life. Here's a couple of questions that continue the conversation. A little bit of homework for you. If you uh, came with somebody or are watching this with a friend or, or a spouse or significant other or whatever, uh, and you're going to lunch afterwards or uh, this week or just sometime at dinner or something like that, um, things to kind of spark uh, the conversation to keep it going. Number one is simply this. Admitting that you might be wrong, is that difficult or really difficult for you? Where does that land on the spectrum of, it's not gonna be, I, I didn't even put easy down as an option because it's not easy, right? That's never easy. But like there are personalities that that just becomes really difficult. And, and if you're wondering on where that at, I, my guess is that your spouse could be able to answer this for you too. They're really, really good at discerning that um, for you. Number two is this, what's the most difficult relationship that you've ever tried to mend back together? And how did that go for you? This one's fun because it's kind of safe from a, like, I'm, I'm not in the moment here. This was like, this could be years ago. This could be whatever. This is what I did. This was my strategy back then. And then sometimes when we replay things back there, it's easy for us to be like, I see where I went wrong, right? It's like watching game film being like, oh, I see. That's what I was, I took that angle. That was a dumb angle. Um, what's the most, what's, what's the strategy with that? And then the uh, last part is this, even for just one week, would you commit Romans 12, 8, or 12, 18 to memory? Which is that verse. Even if it is possible, at all possible. And I mentioned to you changing some of the pronouns. We're all about pronouns right now, right? But so let's do this with this scripture. Let's make this about me. Let's make this about us. As far as it is possible, or if it is possible, as far as it depends on me, be or live at peace with everyone. I don't know where this needs to go in your schedule this week. I don't know if this is like, something that gets written out and put on the bathroom mirror or uh, in your car or on your family calendar where it's like, here's our travel plans. We know we're going here and doing this with the States. This is when I know I'm gonna like come face to face with this relationship that I've been you know, dreading on working on or whatever. Uh, maybe, that, maybe that's where that verse needs to be able to go and be able to resonate with you this week as we replay it in our minds. And may we then uh, not take the path of inaction, but uh, get the order right and work on it with us. So let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help us 
come to grips with this. We see it. We can nod in agreement. Actually doing the work of it is the hardest part. Give us uh, motivation. Give us uh, uh, wisdom in what this looks like in our life and the courage to do something about it in your name. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.